0: Love kid baptisms and kid testimonies. So much better than Bible teacher testimonies. So real and raw. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Hey, we're in a series. If you were here last week, you know, asking for a friend. Uh, Last week was about voting in the Christian. This week, what if I have a friend or a family member who is same-sex attracted? I'd like to make two announcements before we get going. Number one, as you can tell, parents, uh, this will be a little more raw of a sermon, uh, so you need to use your own discernment, whether your child is old enough um, for this discussion, and it's perfectly fine if you don't think that's so. You could take, go out to the lobby, or you could take them to the kids' uh, Sunday school class, but just let you know about that. And number two... I want to uh, repeat what Glenn said last week, that next Sunday at 4, at the four April 30th, at 6.30, uh, we're going to have a panel discussion because uh, you, there's no way to cover even a tenth of these topics. So we will love to be able to answer some questions that you might have, and so the elders and Glenn will be there. Uh, just note that if you want a question asked, you need to email it questions at ubcbeavercreek.com. We are not going to have a live mic because we are chicken, okay? <laughs> and so we like to be prepared for the questions we get. Uh, so it just works better that way. So if you do have a question, by all means, you know, from last week or next week, send them. You won't have any after mine. No, you will. But we want you to know that's coming. Back in 1995 or so, Um, I uh, was in Southern California uh, for a visit, and I had made plans to have lunch with an old college roommate who I hadn't seen 10 years uh, before the internet, so we really hadn't kept up that much, Uh, and so we were having uh, lunch outdoors and in a nice um, patio diner and and my friend and I, I remembered in the back of my mind, hey, I said, weren't, weren't you engaged? And he had been. And, I said, and he said, what happened? He goes, oh, we broke up. And I said, well, what happened? And he goes, Scott, you don't want to know. I said, no, I, I, I care about you. I, I, tell me what happened to that engagement. And he goes, Scott, you don't want to hear the answer. And I thought, well, what happened? You know, Did they have, is there an affair or something he's embarrassed about? I said, I really want you to tell me what happened to that engagement. And he looked at me, and he goes, Scott, I'm gay. Now, this was 1995. I was shocked. I didn't see it coming. I never thought. You say, well, what did you say? And I, my answer was, I said nothing. I just sat there. And he started talking. Like I said, that was 30 years ago. Flash forward to today, and now it's not a question if you're going to get asked about someone's same-sex attraction. It's when you're going to get asked if you haven't been already. We live in a time where the culture around us has totally sabotaged and redefined the narrative surrounding this topic. And... I think, in all honesty, the church was caught flat-footed at the beginning of this. Um, so now we're caught in a tidal wave of voices that are shouting faulty definitions of love and justice and truth. And so, as a result, we have families, we have churches, individual lives that have been damaged, and sometimes it seems beyond repair so I, I'm standing here with you today asking three questions. What do we do? Where do we start? Is there any hope? As I began preparing this talk, and I, I realized I had three audiences that I wanted to address. Audience number one are those in this room, and I know there are those here, who have family or friends with same-sex attraction. Second group I want to address are those in this room who are struggling with same-sex attraction and are listening to my counsel for the first group. And then my third audience are the rest who need to consider, really consider, what it means to bear the burdens of those in groups number one and two. There are so many subtopics, so many questions and directions we could take this discussion today. And I am doing what all good teachers do when you have a complicated topic. I'm going to start at the beginning. I want to start with the basics. And I just want to communicate three fundamental biblical truths that apply to this discussion. Number one, we have a perfect designer. Truth number two, we have a loving Savior. And truth number three, we have a life-changing community. Perfect designer, loving Savior, life-changing community. God has designed this world perfectly. He knows what is best for our lives. Um, An old friend has made an appearance today for the first time on this stage. I want to introduce you to him, Mr. Whiteboard. I love Mr. Whiteboard. See, I'm, I'm a teacher by profession. I spend a lot of time with Mr. Whiteboard every single day. It's how I teach. So I miss Mr. Whiteboard when I have to preach at, 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 at UBC. I don't have him. So uh, Phil and Michael were so kind to make Mr. Whiteboard available today. And so I want to show you a fundamental diagram that I use in all my theology and discipleship and youth ministry classes that I do at Cedarville. It's the diagram of the Bible, okay? So if you don't have any idea this morning what the Bible's about, there's one diagram that answers all your questions. Now, I, before I give you the diagram, I have to tell you that I was a Bible major and an art minor, so don't try to replicate it, okay? Uh, There it is, the four scenes of the Bible. Let me fill them out for you. First scene, number one, is creation. That happens Genesis 1 to 2. Scene number two, we have the fall. That happens Genesis 3. And after the fall, And in fact, in Genesis 3.15, it begins, God has, third scene, a redemption plan. And that redemption plan is going to culminate in scene number four, the consummation of God's redemption plan. That's the Bible in four scenes. I want to focus our attention... ...for our talk today on scene number one. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, we have a picture of the design of God. Perfect. Perfectly designed. I just saw an article a couple weeks ago uh, written by a Christian scientist... ...who has worked for over 40 years with the Hubble Telescope... If you don't know, it's, it's, it's out there in space, and it's shooting pictures of deep space. And it has made available for astronomers and for scientists and cosmologists pictures they've never seen before about how deep and how broad and how wide space is. And this Christian scientist said that something has happened in the world of scientists in astronomy where they used to look out into space thinking, okay, we can probably find some other life-giving world out there like ours. And so they would look for that. But as we've looked and seen more and more of the universe, scientists have started to realize that we're pretty rare on Earth. We're pretty unique. There probably isn't another life-giving planet. You see, we're very unique, number one, because we are placed in a spiral galaxy. Number two, we live next to a relatively quiet star of the right color, the sun, at the right distance, number three from it. Number four, held stable by a large moon. Number five, we have sufficient mass in our planet to hold an atmosphere and water. Number six, this atmosphere is perfectly regulated to give life. Number seven, we have a protective magnetic field, and on and on we go. And this writer said, you start to multiply all those improbabilities that give us what we have today, and you realize it's impossible to find another one. A British physicist wrote this. He said, the really amazing thing is not that life on earth is balanced on a knife edge. The entire universe is actually balanced on a knife edge. You see, even if you dismiss mankind as just a mere hiccup in the scheme of things, the fact remains that the entire universe seems unreasonably suited to the existence of life. It's almost contrived. It reminds me of a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens... He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Let me ask you a simple question. If you have a God who could design a universe on a knife edge to give us life, Don't you think that he could also design a life-giving plan for our lives? Last week, I so appreciated Glenn's sermon, and I really appreciate how he started back in Genesis. That's where we have to start, the same place where God has designed us. You know, the Bible does have a lot of prohibitions against Same sex intimacy. Many of you know those in Genesis 19, Leviticus 19 to 20, Romans 1, and 1 Timothy 1. And often when you're having discussions about same sex attraction in the Bible, that's where you're focused. But I don't want you to start there. You got to start here. You got to start in God's perfect design of the universe, of the world, and of humans, and of marriage, and of sexuality. It's perfect. And you know the prohibitions he gives us later on? They are designed to bring us back to that perfection. That's where you start. The perfect designer. Um, in fact, it's very interesting. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 19. I'm not the only one that does this, nor Glenn. We don't just start back in Genesis by ourselves. Jesus himself would often start back in Genesis. Matthew 19 but I'm going to use a lot of different verses today, so don't try to keep up. I usually put them on the screen for you. Just jot them down in your notes. But in Matthew 19, the Pharisees are trying to, as usual, trick Jesus, and, you know, trip him up. and uh, So they ask him a question about divorce. And I, I'm not going to focus on that question. I want you to see Jesus' answer. So 19 verse 3, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's, life for any, one's, life, one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered. And notice where he goes. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, who made, he made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes back to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and 2, two passages like Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Genesis 2, 23, then the man said this at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then in verse 24 of chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. What Jesus does in Matthew is use Genesis to make at least three points about marriage and sexuality. Point number one, Jesus reaffirms that God created us male and female. That's his perfect design. God did not just create human beings. He made human beings as men and women. It's not something we have invented or something we can define ourselves. It's the way we were created. God made Eve to perfectly complement Adam. God made a woman to perfectly complement a man. Because man by himself is unable to fulfill the purposes as God has set out for the human race. Jesus reaffirms that God created male and female. Number two, marriage, according to Jesus, according to Genesis, is defined by as heterosexual. Marriage is defined as heterosexual. This sexual difference, man and women, is why we have marriage. Now... It's not because we are male and female that we must get married. But Jesus himself did not get married. But the fact that we are male and female means we can be married. In God's design, marriage wouldn't exist if the sexual differences didn't exist. As Tim Keller has written, sex between male and female is the only kind that God has blessed with the astonishing capacity to generate new human persons. The last lesson Jesus teaches us in Matthew 19 is that marriage is complementary. It's a complementary relationship which leads to a profound unity. Allah, the Trinity, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three different persons yet perfectly integrated. Man and woman, not the same as each other, and not interchangeable. But we come together to form a unique human union. It also reflects the purpose of sex. God made sex to be a commitment deepener. The way to say to someone else, I belong to you and you alone. It is only used inside God's design of marriage. It's to be a covenant. It's to be exclusive. It's to be permanent to death do us part. Interestingly, at the end of Genesis 2, Moses says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, in the goodness, the perfection of God's design in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were fully at home. Fully at home with God. Fully at home with one another. Perfectly comfortable in their God-given gendered bodies. Now, some people will say in this discussion, well, Jesus never spoke out against same-sex attraction. And that, and he, So, you know, well, let me just point you to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, um, Jesus, uh, again, is dealing with the Pharisees because they like to poke at him. And at this time, in Mark 7, they are getting on his disciples because they weren't washing their hands properly. You thought your mom was bad. And, and, and Jesus answers the question, he says, Don't, it's not what comes into our bodies from the outside that matters. And, and here's what he says in verse 20 of Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come within and they defile a person. That little phrase, sexual immorality, is the word pornea. The word pornea, which actually means in the Greek, an, an umbrella term. It's an, anything. It's outside sexual activity in marriage. Any sexual activity um, outside of marriage. So while Jesus specifically refers to same sexual activity, he leaves no room for it. The only place for sexual activity is in marriage. And marriage is defined as one man and one woman. Being a Christian one of my favorite authors in the subject says, means that I believe what I believe about sexuality because I believe what I believe about Jesus. And this is a man that struggles with same-sex attraction, a Christian man. We navigate this cultural battle, and sometimes it seems so confusing. I want you to remember we need to go back to the beginning, to the truth that God's the perfect designer, and he knows what's best. Now... Unfortunately, when you talk about Genesis 1 and 2, you've got to talk about Genesis 3 and what the serpent and what Satan did to God's plan. What he, what he whispered in the ear of Eve and Adam. You see, it was more than just words. Uh, Satan had an attitude. He, he had a posture. And his posture was, God doesn't want what's best for your life. Remember how he started it? Did did God really say? God knows. God, God, he knows you're not gonna die. In fact, if you eat of that tree, you can be like God. What is Satan doing? He's saying, God doesn't want what's best for your life. There's a better way. There's a better way. For century after century, Satan has never changed his strategy. He wants to convince us that our plans are better. He wants us to think that we're in charge of our lives. He wants us to think that we know what's best. Over the years, I've had a number of former students who've walked away from their faith journey to follow these false narratives about sexuality that society has promoted. And in almost every explanation of their choice, I've heard them use phrases like this. Well, now I'm living my true self. Now I'm being authentic to the real me. And sadly, Satan has them exactly where he wants them. Where do you find out the real you? Where do you find out what you're supposed to be, not in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 1 and 2, how God made you? When we ask these kinds of questions that we're asking today, we have to have the courage to start out by saying the truth is absolute. It doesn't start with me. It's anchored in the character of a holy God, and he's revealed it to us here. He's a perfect designer. He knows what is best for our lives. But point number two, he's also a loving Savior, and he wants what is best for our lives. He knows what is best. He wants what is best. And in the midst of our culture wars of today, I'll have to be totally honest. I fear that the church in America has not been very good at communicating point number two but yet it's an equal part of the picture. God the creator, the master designer, he's not a distant authoritarian being that just wants to control us and be a killjoy. This king of the universe, he actually has entered into our world. He's actually taken off his crown laid aside His robes, and in the person of the Son, He has come to be with us and to show us a better way out of love. This truth goes hand in hand with the first truth we talked about. He knows what is best and He wants what is best. A number of times this semester, Something unusual has happened in my class. I'll be up front after class is over, putting my stuff away, and I'll have a couple of students rush forward and want to take a picture with me. Now, now I know, looking at me, you say, that's probably a common occurrence. But it really isn't. <laughs> and, and, and I found out the reason they are doing it is because of a new social app called Be Real. Have, all the cool kids are doing it. That's right. And accidentally. okay, be real. You can show that picture up. There he is right there. All right, That's a be real right there. Uh, me and my, okay, don't look at it. But if you, if you look at the top left, though, you'll see one of our worship band members, Ramsey. She's on, she was in the first service, so she didn't come back. I embarrassed her enough. But right, what is this app? Well, it is, uh, it is, uh, all, everybody on the app will get notified every day simultaneously that they have two minutes to capture a two-way photo of themselves and where they're at, okay? So that's what's going on here. They were in class, so they took that picture. Um, And what's interesting to me about it is that the emphasis in this social app is the word authenticity, right? Because most social apps, you can just, you know, fake it. But in this one, there's only two minutes. You have no time really to stage the shot. You don't have any filters to edit the looks, And so what the Be Real app says, actually, is it wants its users, quote, to show their friends who they really are for once. Huh? that's pretty interesting. Now, this transition is going to be a little hard, but it makes sense later. (laughs) I was sitting in my my study in my chair, having my devotions a couple weeks ago, and um, I was reading... Galatians 2. And I came across Galatians 2, 20, one that we're familiar with, right? I call it an Awana verse. It's one of those ones you learn young as a kid. And I read Paul's words again. I said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I've seen that verse many times. But I just, for the first time, focused on those last eight words. Who loved me and gave himself for me. And I thought, that's the be real of Paul's soul. That's who he is, the authentic Paul. A guy who never got over the fact that Jesus loved him and that Jesus gave himself for him. It was the blueprint of Paul's life. It, it was the source of hope. It's the flame for his passions, the salve for his wounds. Paul didn't simply believe in, 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 in Jesus, the Son of God, which itself is marvelous but he believed in Jesus who loved him. Paul, a guy that used to persecute Jesus' church, who would kill Jesus' sons and daughters, that Jesus loved him and gave his life for him. Paul never got over that. Loving Jesus and knowing his love is so much more than a cognitive decision. It's a heart decision. It's a reality of our life. That Jesus loved me so much he would do anything, including give up his very life. So let me ask you a second question today. If you have someone who loves you like that, don't you think he wants what's best for your life? In all of his instructions, in all of his commands, in all of his rules, that each and every one is designed for the best in your life? Someone who knows exactly how you have been designed, don't you think he wants, he knows what's best? To follow Jesus' lead, to follow Jesus' instructions, could that ever be the wrong choice? Now, i got to make a disclaimer. i got to make a caveat. I don't, didn't say... Paul didn't say, Jesus definitely never said, to follow him is the easier choice. See, in fact, Jesus said sometimes to follow him actually feels like death. But in the irony of ironies, to follow Jesus will actually take us up to a consummation of what he gave us in Genesis 1 and 2. To lose our life for his sake is to learn what life is. Jesus says it better than I can in Matthew 10. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. <laughs> Does it make any sense then to think that we can pick and choose which paths we will take to follow Jesus, that sometimes we can just go our own route? For Paul, Jesus was never an add-on. He wasn't a complimentary part to the rest of his life. He was so much more than fire insurance and get-out-of-hell-free card. When someone has loved you enough to die for you, you just don't get over that. And Paul never did. And even better news, when someone loves you like that, to do what Jesus did, he'll never quit on you either. Ever. You might not like the strategies he chooses to put your bike on back on the right path, but he will never give up on you. And I'm increasingly convinced that God uses everything in our life to bring us where Paul was, overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. How does he do that? Answer? Life does that. Pain does that. Trials does that. Suffering does that. Not one experience in our life, not one struggle is ever wasted in Jesus' hands. When we grasp the love of our Savior, we can trust His plan. When we grasp the love of Savior, we can follow His design. And when we grasp the love of our Savior, we can have peace even in the midst of our struggles. Before I go to my final point, I I decided I didn't have time to give you a lot of practical stuff. I think we needed the foundation first. Maybe we'll talk more about that next week in the panel. But I do want you to know something. When you face this truth of same-sex attraction, don't forget it takes both point one and point two. It takes both truth and grace. Grace. In fact, John says about Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father. Jesus, full of grace and truth. <laughs> not only is it the message, it's a person. And what the Bible offers people who struggle, no matter what it is, it's not just same-sex attraction. No matter what it is, he, the Bible offers us truth and grace. There's not a false dichotomy there. It's not either truth or grace. You can't use one as an excuse for the lack of the other. In fact, if we think we have one without the other, we have neither. Biblical truth is always gracious, and biblical grace is always truth-telling. Both are found in the person of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus never avoided the heart issues of his day, just because they might be Uncomfortable. Jesus never avoided those who struggle just because it might get messy. It's grace and it's truth. If we stage the truth in a harsh and sensitive way because we're standing for the truth, we are not being Jesus. Did you hear me? I'm sorry, I'm getting mad. Sorry, go back. Back off, Scott. Okay. And if we continually duck the truth... Because we're just trying to be gracious, we aren't being Jesus either. And by the way, as I think we all know, if we've tried this, it takes the full leading of the Spirit of God to do this, to keep both grace and truth together. Because, excuse my French, it just ain't natural to us. How are we going to be a church where people experience both grace and truth We need to be a culture that discuss the issues. We don't hold back out of fear. It's one of the reasons we're having the discussion today. You see, it's not just a cultural issue, it's a people issue. And there are people, brothers and sisters in our church family and outside our church family for whom this is a struggle full stop. So we talk. We have a perfect designer. He knows what is best. We have a loving Savior. He wants what is best. Finally, He's provided for us a life-changing community. We can only seek God's best together. Galatians 6.2, Paul wrote, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you're a Jesus follower in the auditorium this morning, I want you to know two truths. Number one, In light of Paul's verse, God has not called us to suffer alone. And number two, God has called us to make sure others do not suffer alone. Did you catch that? Bear one of those burdens literally means to share the weight. (laughs) If you've ever helped a friend... Uh, move a sofa bed upstairs, you understand the significance of that, right? On flat level ground, you each can hold 50%. It's okay. But when you're trying to go up the stairs, all the weight goes on the one person below, and it just doesn't work very well. And it's the same thing that happens when we bear emotional burdens and spiritual burdens and mental burdens. As a youth pastor, I had a number of young couples who worked in my youth staff. One of them. Names were Rich and Mandy, and one evening, as I was living in Michigan, I had a knock in my front door at 10 o'clock at night. It's unusual. So I go and flipped on the light, and it was Rich, one of the couples who worked in our youth ministry, and I could tell something wasn't right. So I opened the door, and he came in and just started bawling, and he said, Scott, Mandy has left me for another man. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience, but he, I I mean, you're not, he came in and we sat on the couch, he and I and Sarah, and we just cried prayed and cried and prayed. And I don't remember when he left, but I got to tell you, I was drained. I was tired. I was emotionally wrought. Why? Because I was sharing somebody's burden, but I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you there have been other times in my life, not that emotional, not that dramatic, when somebody has shared a struggle with me. I sat there, and, you know, I'm a Christian, and I'm a Bible professor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and just kind of lobbed over some truth bombs, right? But I left the conversation. I wasn't drained. <laughs> I w- Why? Because I wasn't really sharing the burden. I wasn't carrying the weight. That's what we're called to do. Everybody in here, as brothers and sisters, we're called to share the weight. Sarah and I saw this firsthand a couple of weeks ago. We spent a Friday evening with a care group here at UBC. Uh, this care group is of a, a, a parents of adult children uh, who struggle with same-sex relationships and transgenderism. And we sat in that living room in this care group. They meet twice a month. And uh, it was a very humbling two hours for us. Um, Yet at the same time, it was a beautiful picture of what Paul's describing in Galatians 6. We saw raw honesty we saw gut-wrenching grief and pain. But there is also a wisdom, a deep maturity, and a prayer for hope. See, through the fire of the trial that God has given to these dear people, they have come together to cling to God's truth and to cling to His love. And in the process, their faith is being refined. But I'm, I know that's only happening because they're doing it together. They're sharing the burden. That's what the church is supposed to be. One Christian author says, What kind of waiting room is your church? is your church a doctor's waiting room or the waiting room for a job interview? The latter waiting room is when you come trying to look as competent and impressive as you can, hiding and burying every weakness and struggle. Whereas the former, doctors, you're wearing sweats. You're not even put on makeup. You don't care. Because you're hurt, and you know everyone else in the room is hurting too. Which one is the church? What's the mark of a healthy church? The mark of a healthy church is a church that talks about how sick they are. Don't hide it. Has a culture of being real about the hard things of life. So what are we going to be, UBC, as a church in this moment of time in our culture? The battle is already there. We can't be naive, and we can't be inward focused to think that these issues are only for those on the outside. They won't touch me or my family or my church. This particular issue, and I know as a parent of adult kids and as someone that works with this age group all the time, many of our young people are turning away from the church because we haven't handled this right. Some haven't given the truth, and others haven't given grace. you got to have both. got to have them both, and it's tearing families apart. So what are we going to do, church? We have brothers and sisters in this body who are heartbroken and weary. Are we going to let them suffer alone? We have kids and young adults who are struggling with identity, who are lonely and anxious, or we're going to just let them go to the internet to find identity and community? We have people in our church body who are struggling with sin. They don't feel like they can share with anyone else. Are we, who are all sinners, even the people standing up here, are we going to make them feel less than because they have a certain kind of sin we might not struggle with? We have a community around us that is lost, headed for an eternity apart from God. Are we going to let them wander blindly? I know it's a heavy message. We live in heavy times. But I want to give you three pieces of hope. To you who have families and friends with same-sex attraction, I want to give you a quote from one of the ladies, one of the mothers in that group through her tears, she said, I believe that our child isn't done with her testimony. I believe that God isn't done with her. That's hope. For those of you that are struggling with same-sex attraction, I want you to know that I have another friend in my life, who struggles with same-sex attraction, who has lived a celibate life. And here's the quote that he often says. The reason why he lives the he lives, following Jesus. He goes, There is no part of my life that can't be improved by following Jesus. And for the rest of us in this room, let me just end with what Paul says about us, the church. He says that we are rather speaking the truth in love to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, all of us, that makes the body grow. And it builds itself up in love. Lord, oh my. <laughs> if there's ever reminders of how much we need you today as a day. When we talk openly about the real struggles of life. And the temptations of life. And the pains of life. A broken world. We are cast at the feet of Jesus. The one who was broken for us. So that we can actually learn and experience and grow in redemption. To while we're not going to have Eden back today. Uh. It's going to come someday when Jesus comes back in person. But as we wait, we can get taste of that. We can get a sight of that. And it comes in the church. Oh, may our dime together be times we see Jesus. May the words of this song be our prayer. Amen. Uh, Last week when this song was said, led... Uh, I, I texted Phil, I said, I want it at the end of our sermon next week because it will let us hear the hope that we have.